Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Yitro, Jethro. The address is Shemot, Exodus, chapter 18, verse 1 through chapter 20, verse 23 in a Jewish Bible. However, in your English Bible, the numbering would go through chapter 20, verse 26. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher, Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on February 2nd of 2000. And six. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banu Mekol HaAmim, V'Natan Lanuet Torah To. Baruch Ata Adonai Notein HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, Yitro, as the portion name suggests, is the name of Moshe's father-in-law. And as such, he's the first character named in this week's portion, giving the parasha its title. Um, the commentary this week um, as I was putting it together, um, and I know I took a little bit longer to, to get it, send it out to you students, so I do apologize. Um, it's a little longer than I had normally anticipated uh, because um, the Lord kept laying things on my spirit, and more and more um, I, I kept rearranging the, the information until I finally settled on the version that I have without changing the date that I updated it. And so um, I say that it's a little longer, but actually it's only nine pages in... Um, in PDF format. When I originally began to write the commentaries, they were only about three to four pages each. They were meant to be kind of like a newsletter, um, very short, uh, to the point. But uh, as I studied more and as I felt that more information was was uh, pertinent for the readers and the listeners, then I decided to um, add that to the commentary. So forgive me for lengthening it as well as forgive me for getting it out to the students late. Those of you listening to this commentary by way of podcast and it's several weeks away from the date of the reading, well this doesn't make any uh, difference to you anyway. At any rate, um, as I stated before, um, one of the primary reasons that I believe Hashem delighted in miraculously delivering the people from Egypt, was so that he could demonstrate his mighty power in all of the earth. And this would include not only a demonstration to um, Jacob's descendants, but a demonstration to the non-descendants uh, of Jacob, those Israel or those Egyptians and other slave groups who came out of Egypt with Israel on the day that they left Egypt. They all saw 
God's miraculous power and all experienced God's wonderful salvation as it was uh, pictured in the um, tenth plague and the um, and the uh, uh, Passover lamb and the blood that was um, uh, put on the doorpost and things like that. And of course we know, uh, looking back in hindsight from our um, 21st century advantage and with the help of the apostolic scriptures, we know that this foreshadows the salvation made available to every man through Messiah Yeshua's atoning death as well. In the opening few pasukim, few verses of Parashat Yitro, we see that this powerful deliverance has already reached the ears of the priest of Midian. And so, God's fame is spreading, and that's a good thing. Moshe is, of course, the leader, but he's a proven leader. Uh, earlier in the narrative, we didn't read it, but if you were reading the text, you'll see that um, after they came out on the other side of the Red Sea, um, that they placed their trust in God and in Moses, their leader. So, God's um, deliverance had a way of vindicating his leader as well. And again, we see a type and shadow there. That God's salvation through Yeshua has a way of vindicating both God and his chosen Messiah, Yeshua. However, with Moshe, he's getting up there in years already, I mean, at least by our standards, as an 80-year-old man. He and his brother became the instruments in leading the greatest, how would we say, freedom march in Israel's history. But now, as the dust is beginning to settle, at least from the um, the, the miraculous events of getting out of Egypt, um, they're in this middle period where they're not in Egypt and they're not at Sinai yet. They're working their way to the mountain. So they find a need to express their individual concerns to this humble man of God. And um, what does Moshe do? He sits and he listens. And he finds himself hearing matter after matter, day in, day out. This wears him out, as it should any leader if he were to take on the um, Herculean task that he is doing, listening to the complaints of some, what, two million plus people. Uh, I can't imagine what they were arguing about, but um, at any rate, um, Moshe's father-in-law peeks in on this and, and, and steps into uh, Moshe's audience and makes a suggestion. And Yitro wisely suggests to his son-in-law that he delegate his God-given authority to others able and willing to provide counsel for the people. Now, um, if Moshe were a man of pride, I mentioned earlier that he was humble, if he were a man of pride, he would have rejected his father-in-law's suggestion. Um, in fact, if the relationship were not um, uh, a good one or a close one, a working relationship, then he definitely would have rejected it. Or if Moshe would have considered that, you know, maybe I'm more spiritually... Um, uh, equipped to handle this situation after all. Don't you know who I am? I'm Moses. I led the people out of Egypt. You know, I split the Red Sea with my staff. This is me. I'm Moses beating his chest. But you know, that's not the way the Torah records the incident. Moshe's not this man of the hour um, like we see in, in unfortunately some of the leaders of, of today and, and unfortunately in religious circles where, where when someone tries to counsel them or give them a suggestion they respond with something like no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm leading the ship now here we catch a glimpse of the utter teachableness of Moses he is a great teacher but I believe that the greatest teachers are those who are students themselves and those who are willing to learn from others and so um, rather than resist Yitro's request Moshe humbly accepts his advice. We could learn a thing or two from this man, Moses. 
Let's move on to the um, bulk of the um, parasha, the meat of the passage, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. This next section is entitled Matan Torah and Symbolic Traditions. Matan Torah means the giving of the Torah. The bulk of this week's portion is given over to the listing of what is known in Judaism as Asrat Hadvarim, or the ten words, as that phrase uh, means from the Hebrew. In Exodus chapter 20, an enumeration of the Ten Commandments has been given for all, all of us to read. By the way, another list shows up in the book of Deuteronomy, but we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to it. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, before... Hashem gives out these commands. He actually instructs Moshe to have the uh, people prepare themselves for two days, uh, washing their clothing and abstaining from sexual relations one with another, all for the purpose of displaying his manifest power in the sight of his newly chosen people. Of course, we know God's going to come down on um, the mountain in the sight of the people on the third day and give them the Ten Commandments. Um, now, he's invited Moshe to come up to the mountain, but the people themselves must not come near the mountain, nor must they touch the mountain. In fact, even the animals are not to touch the mountain. We're going to talk about that. Um, During my studies, I run across many rabbinic resources from here and there and from time to time. And um, I I can't say that um, I agree with everything that they say, but it's interesting that they have, in fact, preserved the traditions behind the text a lot earlier and a lot longer than the Christian church has. After all, um, the, the Christians came onto the scene a little later on. So the Jewish people have right to add to this particular part of their own history. After all, it is their history. And it's interesting that in this uh, setting, the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, um, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, actually he was appointed um chief rabbi before it reached statehood but um, he lived from 1980 I'm sorry he lived from 1865 to 1935 and I've got um, a collection of his writings I'm not sure where I got this particular um, uh, information that I'm going to share with you on the page I may have gotten it from um, Nahama Leibovitz's notes uh, I can't be certain I don't have a footnote to this one at any rate he has some food for thought on this part- uh, spectacular event of the giving of God's word to the people. Let's peek in on his notes. Here's what he has to say. On what day was the Torah given to the Jewish people? Or actually the narrative in the book um, backed up and and used this information first. You know what? According to my footnotes, I did get this from uh, Ain Ayah 6, um, number 169. Um, on what day was the Torah given to the Jewish people? It goes on to question. The majority opinion is that the Jews received the Torah... <clears throat> excuse me, on the 6th of Sivan, um, which would have been a Friday. Rabbi Yossi, however, disagrees. He says that the Torah was given on the 7th of Sivan. And now that first statement was taken right out of the Talmud, out of Tractate Shabbat, um, uh, page 86, or Folio 86. Um, what is the essence of the disagreement? What does it matter if Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, occurred on the 6th or the 7th of Sivan? Um, that's maybe what a modern might ask. Well, Rav Cook writes that this difference of opinion revolved around which aspect of the fundamental purpose of the Torah should be stressed. The 6th and the 7th of Sivan relate to the very first 6th and 7th days in history, the 6th and 7th day of creation. And most of the sages preferred to associate the Sinaitic uh, revelation um, to the 6th day of creation, that is, on a Friday. That they, they would say that The Torah was given on a Friday there. That was the day that God created man, if you'll recall. Now, the primary value of the Torah, the sages emphasized, is a 
or is as a completion of that act of creation, the birth of man. So they link the birth of man on the sixth day with the giving of Torah on that very same day, you know, some several thousand years into the future. The purpose of Torah, they say, is to perfect man, to recreate him in a new pure form. So in other words, many sages equate the giving of the Torah with the God recalling uh, creating man, and therefore you could say that um, this giving of the Torah here is kind of like reminiscent of the birthday of man, almost like a, a, a birthday present form. Rabbi Yossi, on the other hand, uh, chose to stress the final goal of the Torah. And that's why he disagreed and said that it was given on the 7th. For after all, he says, the Torah marks its, or makes its mark on the human soul after the ideals of the Torah are internalized in his heart. It will take root into the innermost soul of creation, uplifting and refining the entire universe. So, in terms, from Rabbi Yossi's point of view, in terms of this ultimate goal of the Torah... He says that it is fitting that it be revealed to the world on the seventh day, which we know was the concluding day of the creation. Um, in the seventh day, the Torah is linked to the day when creation was completed, which, of course, is the Sabbath. The ultimate perfection and rest is pictured in the Torah, the day of ultimate perfection and rest. End quote. Fascinating. I wish I could have been there to see what would have happened. Um, as we're about to discover, it was quite the, um, how should we say, sensual event, meaning uh, it involved all of the senses of the people. And that's what I want to talk about next. The themes surrounding the giving of the Torah embodied in the Ten Words is one of the most, if not the most, significant event in the history of the offspring of Abraham. And even if it isn't the most significant event, surely it carries the most impact, even for Jewish people today. For it is here, at Mount Sinai, that Hashem symbolically takes to himself a bride. And that's what I want to stop and examine for a moment, okay? So let's look at a few of the symbols um, of getting married. For that reason, this next section is entitled, Let's Get Married. What some of you listening to the podcast may not know is that in traditional Jewish thought, a ritual immersion bath known as a mikveh, or a tevila, actually precedes the actual marriage ceremony that takes place uh, today, especially if you're just going to have a traditional Jewish ceremony. Now, I'm not talking about the Western-type ceremony where you just have the bride and groom meet at the altar and the way they go. Um, in Jewish um, practices, the ritual bath, the um, immersion, um, the bride herself immerses in a pool of water. She immerses completely, uh, all the way. She goes all the way under, and this symbol this symbolizes cleansing her of all impurities. It's it's a ritual bath. It's not a um, it's not for the sake of cleaning the dirt off of her. In fact, to be sure, I believe she takes a bath before she actually takes the uh, mikvah. After this, she then comes up out of the water to meet her husband. Well, she comes up gets dressed, of course, and then meets her husband. The journey of the people through the waters of the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, according to the New Testament writer, the Apostolic Scriptures, this served as a symbol of the mikvah in Jewish thought. They were baptized into Moses. Um, and to say Moses there was to say that they were baptized um, into 
uh, God, really. It's, it's, it's circumlocution to say they're baptized into Moses. They believed in God and in Moses, it said, after they came up out of the Red Sea. So to be baptized into Moses is not in the absence of the reality of God's deliverance. Rather, it's the reverse. It's actually the acceptance of God's deliverance through the hand of Moshe. So it's like they're getting married there. But to God, not to Moshe. At any rate, the um, the mikvah took place before the marriage ceremony here at Mount Sinai. So the um, timing is still in the correct order. Mikvah first, marriage second. Also in traditional Jewish thought, a marriage involved a a, a ceremony that takes place under a canopy, a chuppah. In fact, today, if, if you've ever attended a Jewish ceremony, you'll see that the chuppah is a four-cornered garment, um, usually a talit, um, in which four friends of the groom hold uh, the garment up by four poles, and uh, then the marriage couple gets married underneath the chuppah. Um, as, again, as I mentioned, the chuppah is usually a large uh, prayer shawl owned by the groom. In Exodus 19.17, the Torah tells us that when Moshe brought the people out to hear the thunderous voice of Hashem, um, the text tells us that they stood at the base of the mountain. And um, the Hebrew words translated as base of the mountain support a translation that curiously would read underneath the mountain. Let me just pull that up for you uh, on my computer. Let's see, we want to go to Exodus uh, chapter 19. Because I want to turn to the Hebrew here. Uh, let's see, nineteen seventeen. Give me one second here. Moses brought forth the people. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mountain. The word um, nether there in Hebrew, uh, the root is um, tach. Actually, it's tachti, and it's an adjective. Um, tachat is the root word, and this word is translated in other passages as the um, low or lowest part, or the lower parts, um, nether, lower, lowest. Um, I believe there's one translation. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. And Genesis, no. It's it's only used once here in Exodus. Let's see, how's it used in Deuteronomy? Lowest, Joshua shows that it's used um, nether. Let's see, Judges shows up once. And it is um, the nether springs, the lower. Um, I believe there's one translation that shows uh, that it's under. Uh, that uh, When we say the word nether or lowest, um, there's the inference, at least from the um, Hebrew, I'm sorry, at least from the Jewish um, um, traditions, that it is underneath, is what, what, what the... Um, the phrase is trying to maybe even convey. At any rate, um, what if we were to translate it, instead they met, instead of meeting at the base of the mountain, what if we were to say that they let, met at the nether part of the mountain? Now we know we, it means the lower part. That's really what the prose is trying to tell us. They were not at the um, summit of the mountain. They were at the lower part of the mountain. That's what the narrative is really saying. But um, because of the rabbi's um, urge to play with words and to see symbol sim, symbolism in everything, they translate the word um, tachat as underneath um, the mountain. Now, you have to ask yourself, how on earth could anyone stand underneath a mountain? It's not possible unless there maybe are caverns and there are underneath the mountain, like in caves. But that's not what took place. What 
the text could be hinting at, and I'm not trying to be dogmatic here, I'm simply working with Midrash, so um, don't stone me just yet, is that maybe some sort of extremity of the mountain may have served for the people to stand near or under. Um, What would this look like? Maybe a cliff or an overhang or an outcropping of some sort? Now, since this is a miraculous event, on the other hand, and you have to agree with me, it's also possible that a miracle took place that day and that a part of the mountain actually did take the shape of a covering, um, allowing the people to assemble underneath. In other words, perhaps they did stand under a chuppah. Who knows? I don't know. And I can't be um, dogmatic either way, but it's an interesting um, suggestion. The point is this. The Hebrew of the above-mentioned verse certainly supports the use of the word underneath and proximity to the mount, um, even though that stretches the limits of our understanding of human language. Okay, That's all I'm trying to get at. Uh, understand it first from the Peshat that they stood near the base of the mountain, but then work with me. Understand that um, God is trying to uh, convey to us themes and, and word pictures, and the Torah speaks in word pictures, and it is possible that it took place that way. I don't know. I'd, we'll have to ask Moshe when, uh, when we see him, okay? Let's move on. In traditional Jewish thought, also, a marriage is certified by a very important piece of paper, and that's, of course, the wedding contract known as a ketubah. Um, this legally binding document is agreed upon by both parties, both the, the groom and the bride. And it serves as a visible reminder to everyone there that at you know at the wedding ceremony that this bride belongs to this groom and vice versa. That's why sometimes you'll see at some weddings they'll actually bring out the ketubah um, and show it to everyone um, so that the audience is witness to the ketubah. Now the Hebrew word ketubah um, possesses the root word katav, which means in Hebrew to write. That's why we call the um, a second part of the Tanakh. Um, I'm sorry, the third part of the Tanakh, the Ketuvim. We got the T for Torah, the N for Nevi'im, which means prophets, and then the Ketuvim, the writings. Well, the same root word there, Katav. Well, the Torah tells us in chapter 19, verses 3 through 8, that Hashem delivered the people out of the bondage of the Egyptians so that he might enter into a special kind of relationship with them. And what is the special relationship that I'm referring to? God wanted not just a friend, but God wanted a covenant partner. And the covenant I'm um, referring to right now is a marriage. The relationship would um, involve them, the people, adhering to the covenant that Hashem already made with their forefathers some 430 years prior to this. So God was not beginning a brand new relationship with the sons of Jacob that day and with the foreigners who joined themselves to the sons of Jacob. No, 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 no. Actually, remember, God had already established covenant with Abraham, you know, some 430 years earlier. And in the promises made to Abraham, God promised that he would deliver Abraham's offspring from the land that would oppress them. In fact, he even gives, a, gives Abraham the timetable. He told him that it would be 430 years. And Moshe, of course, records that accurately. So um, what we're seeing here is that Sinai represents a promise coming to pass, a promise that was made earlier. So in a, in a, in a, a small way, in one way you could say it's, it, it's the beginning of something new, but in another way it's simply um, the bringing alongside of the Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant alongside of the pre-existent Abrahamic Covenant, and so the two are joining together to complete um, 
the picture for the Jewish people or for Am Yisrael. All right? did, I, did I lose anyone on that? In one sense, it's a brand new thing. But in another sense, it is simply the completion of something that had already um, been promised to Abraham a long time ago. So in this manner, here at Sinai, they would become Hashem's most peculiar treasure. The Hebrew would be Amsugalah, treasured possession, among all the other peoples of the earth. For in fact, what other people group has God married himself to? None. In fact, if you say, well... What about the church? The church is his bride. This is true. The church is his bride. But the church exists not um, separate from Israel. No, no, no. The church is in fact the remnant of Israel. Not replacing Israel, but again, joining the people of Israel and becoming part of the remnant of Israel um, because of their faith in the Messiah. So, Let's look at the people's response to this marriage proposal. This is quite interesting. In chapter 19, verse 8, here's what the people say. Quote, All the people answered as one. Everything Adonai has said, we will do. End quote. Now they sound rather confident of themselves, don't they? Everything that Adonai has said, we will do? Well, let's keep reading in the text, or let's, let's analyze the text. This is rather amazing when it becomes apparent that Hashem hasn't even spelled out the terms and conditions of the contract yet. Huh. But what was the contract? The contract was the ketubah. Where was the ketubah? Where was it? Well, the answer is obvious. The Torah that God is giving to them, uh, symbolized in the ten words... It is the marriage contract between the bride and the groom. It is the ketubah. The Torah is the marriage contract because the stipulations of the co- of the uh, covenant and the and the um, relationship are spelled out in the very pages of the Torah, especially as it becomes um, uh, articulated by Moshe in the um, days and weeks to come. Let's get our first look at this wonderful marriage contract of theirs, okay? For this reason, it's best that we do not degenerate or um, degenerate, denigrate the uh, Torah and relegate it to a status of merely law. Rather, the Torah is more than that. It is a contract. It is a legally binding agreement between God and his people. And how can we, the um, later emerging church, be so foolish as to suggest that once the Gentiles joined the uh, people of Israel, that the Torah was somehow uprooted and tossed away, uh, discarded and done away with? Would God toss his, his wedding document just by bringing in um, the addition of the um, other side of Israel, the Gentile people groups? I don't think so. The marriage is as strong as ever. God has not repudiated his people. God has not cast off Israel. God has not forsaken the Jewish people. And therefore, by reason of um, that same logic, God has not cast off the Gentile peoples as well. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to use that same logic in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11 to suggest that if God has cast off the Jewish people, then you, the Gentiles who have been grafted into Israel, you also need to tremble in fear because if God didn't spare the natural branches, what makes you think he's going to spare you the grafted in branches? Good lesson. All right. It's not where I want to go with the commentary, but um, thanks for allowing me to digress a bit. What I want to do is examine each one of the ten words and then briefly comment on the meaning of each one. The traditional enumeration of these mitzvot, these commandments, is slightly different in a Jewish Bible 
than in your average English translations used by many Christians. And so what I'm going to do for the, my commentary here is I'm going to be using the Jewish outline, and I will begin each command with the Hebrew letter used in Hebrew Bibles to signify the corresponding number. In essence, um, for the first commandments through the ten, the Hebrew has them listed as the first through ten letters of the Hebrew alphabet, where, where the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in Hebrew would be Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayin, Chet, Tet, Yod, respectively. So what I will read is um, Mitzvah Aleph, and then I'll tell you it's um, location in the text, like verses one or verses five or whatever, and then um, my comments will follow in the brackets. All right. This next section is entitled Asarat, Hadra, <laughs> Asarat Hadvarim, the ten words. All right. Let's read the first uh, commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Quote, Then God said all these words, Mitzvah Aleph, verse 1. Quote, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. End quote. This correctly identifies the one who did the delivering in respect to the ones who were delivered as well as establishes the location of the delivery. It's, it is a legal format right up front, and authority is clearly the, clearly the key here. Um, it's kind of like when you address a letter to someone. You pull out a piece of paper and a pen, and at the top of the letter you write to, colon, and then the recipient's name. And then below that you write from, colon, and then you write your own name. And then perhaps you might write subject line, colon, and then the subject. Um, that's kind of what's going on here. From God to Israel, and the subject is delivery from Egypt. Um, it, there's there's authority implied in the opening um, few uh, words here. Um, in other words, there is no one else but Adonai, and it is indeed he who has freed you from Egypt. There's no mistaking um, what's happening. Let's also pull a quote in from another Torah teacher, um, this time from our Torah teacher of blessed memory, Nechama Leibovitz. Uh, she adds insight by providing a, uh, a significant quote from the brilliant sage Ibn Ezra. So we're going to pick up a quote from Ibn Ezra as has been um, um, put together, uh, compiled for us by Nechama Leibovitz. Here's the relevant citation from Ibn Ezra. Quote, Rabbi Judah Halevi, may he rest in honor, asked me, why did the text read, I, the Lord, am thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, and not, read, um, uh, who made heaven and earth and made you too. How come, in other words, the uh, Ibn Ezra starts off by um, examining the text, how come God identifies himself with the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, not the one who made heaven and earth? When, in fact, God did make the heavens and the earth, why doesn't he identify himself that way? Why does God have to, um, or why did God choose to, um, uh, single out the incident from Egypt. This was my answer to him, uh, Rabbi Judah says, or Ibn Ezra says, um, know that not everyone is capable of, capable of attaining the same level of faith. Some believe in God on the basis of hearsay. Those in authority tell them it is written in the Torah given by God to Moses. Should a heretic question their faith, they are dumbfounded because they don't know what to answer. One who aspires to master the sciences, which are stepping stones to the desired goal, will see the work of God in the animal, mineral, and vegetable around him, in the human body, the workings of every limb. He will master astronomy and the laws of nature. The ways of God will lead the philosopher to a knowledge of God. And this is what Moses meant when he said, 
Make known, quote, make known to me thy ways, and I shall know thee, end quote, taken from Exodus 33.13. The Almighty stated in the first commandment, however, quote, the, I, the Lord, am thy God, end quote. He doesn't elaborate after that. And what um, Ibn Ezra goes on to explain is that only a, de- only a person of deep intellectual attainments will be satisfied with the formulation, that is, the message, quote, of I, the Lord, am thy God. That statement alone will satisfy the intellectual elite of, in- of, of any nation. Now, why? The Ibn Ezra goes on to say, Now God had performed, quoting Deuteronomy, Now God had performed signs and wonders in Egypt till he brought them out from there to become their God. Thus said Moses. Um, that, again, from Deuteronomy 4.34. Um, and now he quotes Moses, quote, Has God tried to take one nation from another? End quote. In other words, God did for Israel what he did for no other people. Moses referred to the impact of the miracles of the Almighty performed in Egypt when he stated in chapter 4 uh, and verse 35 of Deuteronomy there, quote, you were made, I'm sorry, of Exodus, you were made to see that you might know that the Lord, he is God, end quote. Everyone saw the signs, Ibn Ezra goes on to remind us, everyone saw them, both the scholar and the layman of Egypt, old and young. He also added to the impact through the revelation of Sinai when they, the people, heard the voice of God of Exodus chapter 4, verse 36. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 4, 36, where he's recalling, quote, from the heavens did he cause thee to hear his voice to instruct thee. And then, um, finally, Ibn Ezra goes on to say, he referred to the absolute conviction that there's no God besides him to be attained by the believer through clear proofs. And then uh, Ibn Ezra goes on to... uh, uh, pull out another passage this time. Quote, know this day and keep in mind that the Lord, he is God, there is no other. End quote. Also, I, the Lord. Now, in his concluding um, midrash here, what the Ibn Ezra is trying to point, across, point out to us is that in the statement, know this day and keep in mind that the Lord, he is God, there is no other, as compared to I, the Lord, he he comes full circle by saying that the phrase uh, used in the very first um uh, mitzvah, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. The Ibn Ezra um, breaks down um, the verse into the two parts, the two components. I am the Lord your God as one part, and who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery is the second part. And he makes the midrash by saying that I, the Lord, um, I am Adonai your God, is is meant for the intellectual, because he only needs to know that God is is the Lord, and therefore he will accept him on that alone. But the the additional phrase or clause, quote, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, or brought you out of the abode of slavery, was meant for the non-intellectual, the person who needs um, just a little more convincing. Now, um, I'm not saying I completely agree with the Ibn Ezra's um, application of that verse, um, but it is interesting food for thought that in today's 21st century where we have a world full of skeptics, they say to God, show me that you're God. Show me some fantastic sign or wonder, and then I'll believe that you're God. And yet it should be enough for us that God can merely say, and merely does say, I am the Lord God. And that alone should be revelation enough to um, cause us to fall down on our knees and worship him.